Welcome to Uncommon Core, where we explore the big ideas in crypto from first principles. This show is hosted by Su Zhu, the CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Three Arrows Capital, and me, Hasu, the crypto researcher and writer. Today we welcome Jordi Alexander, a former professional poker player turned macro trader turned crypto trader. Jordi, who competes in the Mindsports Olympiad, is an expert in games and game theory in general. Together we discuss how to pick up new games and improve, how you can apply game theory to the crypto markets, what Jordi and Sue think about the market, especially the role of Bitcoin and Ethereum, and finally why Sue is doge-pilled and whether he can convince us of his thesis. Welcome to the show, you guys. It's been a while. Yeah, it's a good summer break. Well, nice to uh, catch up with you in this setting now. I've had a lot of chats with both of you, so I'm looking forward to it. Uh, yeah, likewise. Um, why don't you give us a quick um, introduction of yourself, sort of your, your background, um, both pre-markets and then how you got into crypto and what you do today. Sure. Um, I'm always stereotyped as you know, one of the poker players. I was a professional poker player for um, five, six years um, out of college. I played first, you know, no limit games and then increasingly got into mixed games. And I, I really like the aspect of um, being good at poker in general instead of just, just one game. Um, mm. So I did that quite successfully um, for a bunch of years and uh, transitioned into trading, which is, I guess, not uncommon for uh, a poker player. Um, but I guess the difference was it was HFT trading. So it's, it's much more on the algorithmic machine learning side. Um, I did that about uh, nine, nine years ago, transitioned and I still play a lot of poker. I still play a lot of games. I love games. I played chess. Um, I play many games. I love strategy and, uh, I bring a lot of that mindset to like decision-making and both trading and investing. In the in sort of the pre-show discussion, you told me you com you compete in actually mind the mind sport Olympics called uh, Pentamind, and I saw you are on rank four in, in the world, um, which is kind of crazy. So, uh, what is that? Yeah, um, it's I would say like right now the premier sort of multi-game um, event where there's an event every year for three weeks where you can play multiple games, whether it's chess, poker, backgammon, um, mm -hmm. you know, bridge, board games like. Catan and other things as well. And you get a score for how well you do in these games. Um, if you score five really good scores, you actually have a chance for the overall title, uh, which is the Pentamine title, which uh, actually like Demis Hassabis from AlphaGo won many times when he was uh, younger and, uh, and taking it quite seriously. Um, but there's some really strong players around the world who train throughout the year. And I like to just kind of get in the ring with them and, and try to stay sharp. How do you get good at so many games, new games in general? I think the key thing, um, instead of focusing on the native aspects of a game, like in chess, you know, you can just focus on openings and memorizing openings. Instead of doing that, you focus on the sort of Legos of strategy, the game theory building blocks. And as you get very good at abstractions, you can easily like move those into new games very fast and you can just realize that okay this is that mechanism now or this is a tactical um combination here if you get very much in that mindset then um you know you can apply your learnings to many more domains uh, so you have been learning chess recently right what is your process 
I have. Um, I've been taking lessons from from grandmasters every week um, with a friend of ours. Um, uh, it's actually really fun to learn chess because I think uh, it's it's a very rules based game. Uh, it's a it's a very uh, incremental game, so you never really get worse. You can only get better, and you can see how you're like seeing different patterns. I mean, at least at my level, I'm sure at Jordy's level, you can, can actually get quite a bit worse if you don't play a lot. Um, but it's good to be able to like see like new patterns that you didn't notice before, or like new kind of um, ways of building an attack, or these kinds of things. So for me, I'm still in that phase where it's just very, very exciting because you you kind of see more and more opportunities each time uh, you play the game. One one question I would have for both of you, so that this has always seemed very instrumental to me in learning new games and getting good at, at one game as well, which is sort of what feedback loop do you create for yourself that lets you measure whether an action was good or bad, like you should have taken it or whether you should have not taken it. Because sometimes, you know, the feedback that you get is always very delayed, right? You always know, you only know like 10 moves later, you know, whether something was good or bad. I mean, chess, it's almost like with the engines these days and with the analysis, they it's really good at, it's almost the purest game in terms of like you do an action and it'll tell you exactly how good it was and like how uh, like other options could have been. And, you know, it, it's interesting too because like when you see the moves too and you go through the moves with like a grandmaster, they'll say like, well, the actual engine move, you could never have done it yourself because it's is for these reasons and that couldn't mm -hmm. have possibly been your plan. But the, the, you know, the secondary moves are also very good and you could have found these reasons or you could have found these moves through this kind of thought process. So it's, it's almost like there are general right answers and you have to figure out what are those right answers and how to have a framework to find right answers quickly as well, right? Because chess is best played in like, you know, faster games too, where you have to think on your feet and you don't have time to think about it all day. So... I would say like chess has a little bit more juice in it. Like you saw like alpha chess uh, last year, you know, the, the alpha go guys, when they developed um, their chess program, it was playing completely differently than the engines yeah. and it was just crushing the engines. So it just showed that there is like a layer that's even deeper. If you want just very pure, you play backgammon, it's solved. You basically just any move that you do on the board, it'll tell you, you know, what's the exact EV probability of this move versus that move. The, the the art of it becomes you you learn from the machine and you say like what heuristics can I draw because if this situation is not exactly the same next time I need to still apply the heuristic and the learning so it drives you towards picking up the patterns and being able to kind of build an intuition that you can apply to a very similar uh, but not exactly the same uh, spot and that's definitely the case with uh, trading as well where you know history rhymes but it doesn't repeat. So, Jody, you play a lot against, I assume, like a lot of heads-up matches against players, for example, in like the Mind Game Olympics. And how much, like you mentioned, sort of backgammon is a solved game, right? So you know, you know what to do if the other, if the other player is basically the quote-unquote nemesis, right? It's it, it's a player who never deviates from the ultimate strategy themselves. But that's not always the the best thing to do, right? If you're playing against another human who who does make mistakes, how do you go about? Um, sort of deviating from the optimist strategy if you know what it is? That's actually a very relevant question for crypto markets because yes. <laughs> um, when, you, when you look at poker, you can either play GTO, which uh -huh. basically means you, know, you play unexploitably perfectly, or you play exploitably, which is kind of more the, you know, Phil Helmuth gets made fun of a lot because he, he makes a lot of mistakes in, in the poker world. 
but he's very successful because he can take advantage of other players' um, weaknesses and tendencies, even if he's not playing GTO. Um, so I would say having that understanding in the crypto market is one of the main leaks that I had initially because coming in from traditional markets, you know, maybe it's not efficient market hypothesis because nothing's really that efficient and there's always somebody, you know, making, making, uh, making those adjustments. But in the crypto world, it was very easy for me to say, okay, something went up three X. I think last year, Sue uh, gave me like Solana at $2. I bought it, sold it at six. And I thought like, you know, this is like the greatest trade ever. When you look at it in retrospect, you realize because of how inefficient the market is, um, you can't have this GTO mindset. You should have a much more exploitative mindset. Like what is everybody else doing? You know, this thing is just going to run. Mm. Um, that also allows you to participate in a lot of the Ponzi nomic sort of buildups where, you know, something just memes itself into some really high market cap. Um, you can capture it because you're not thinking in a GTO mindset of mm. like, you know, where should this actually be trading at? You're, you're more kind of playing the psychology. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would question if there is even something like a GTO strategy in, in markets, right? I mean, we know even for the simplest multiplayer games that there, there aren't Nash equilibria, but there's an infinite number of them. And they are very different properties from like the Nash equilibria you find in heads up games, right? You know, if you play the optimist strategy in a heads up game, then no matter what the other person do, at worst, you're going to break even. For any mistake they make, you always make a profit. But in multiplayer games, like one person deviating from the strategy can actually cost you money, even if you play quote-unquote perfectly, which is like a very different game. So I think that's basically... Absolutely. Yeah. Now, the social element as well and, and the um, combination of the two um, is something that is very relevant to some games. Um, mm -hmm. Like you said, not necessarily like heads up games, but something like Catan. Mm -hmm. You know, I was playing Catan yesterday competing in this uh, championship. Mm -hmm. You have to like do the table talk and explain to people that, oh, I'm not winning right now. Somebody else is winning. Mm -hmm. You have to divert their attention to certain uh -huh. places. There's a lot of like game theory elements that are not just related to sort of optimal play. Yeah. That's fascinating that this happens even on the highest level because it's something that always happens sort of in our home games, in every game. Happens, like, at, happens at all the levels. Constant meta discussion about who to like create coalitions against and so on. Um, I want like give me some actionable advice. Like let's say like my friends come over and they bring a new game, right? And none of us have ever played it or like only one of us has played it. How do I get, you know, decent edit in like the shortest amount of time what is sort of even if you were like sitting alone like with the game like on your kitchen table like what is your process for breaking the game open i think that's where everyone's individual strengths and weaknesses have to play a part for me i realized that the fastest way i can learn something is the most uncomfortable way i basically inundate my brain with information and it feels very uncomfortable in that moment because you know i'm just not remembering everything, um, dropping concepts. But I think subconsciously, uh, my intuition is picking up small pieces. And if I do this, even though it feels like crap, very soon I'll realize that things are starting to form in my mind, just connections between um, you know the, the different information pieces I've fed it. So for me, I allow the kind of process to happen, even though it's, it's not very natural. Um, other people are much more structured. They have to like look at all the cards in the game. Here's like, you know, 
you take a tan. There's 20 development cards. There's you know there's 15 knights and and three victory points, and they need that structure around um, all the elements of the game and just kind of build upon it. Mm-hmm. So everyone's everyone's personality has to come in and and uh, kind of suit to their strengths. I'm actually not that good at games compared to you guys, so I almost don't think I have a very good process for game theory. I I think that it's it's in a way. I find myself much more of a like a reflexive thinker. Like I try to think in terms of not what are the rules of the game uh, and how do I beat the beat the game given those rules. I I almost don't think of it that way as much, especially when it comes to markets. Um, I almost try to think like you know what what are the things that um, I think are likely to happen, and if it were to happen, people uh, would believe in it in a, even more as it happened, kind of thing. So Soros talks a lot about this in his books where he talks about how there are so many things where um, before they happen, it's not obvious, but after they happen, they become, you know, really like, like evident and they continue that way. And, and, and so I guess like I try to focus on, on things where um, it's not really zero sum or it's not really like player versus player, but it's more sort of like, like we can all believe something new tomorrow. Um, and, and what will this new thing tomorrow be? Mm, interesting. Do we have a process for identifying these things in advance? I mean, just talking to people. I mean, I spend a lot of time talking to people in the markets, just figure out what people, um, you know, are thinking and how they view the markets. Because the market is like a, it's like a mix of so many different types of people, especially in crypto, right? So many mm-hmm. different mentalities, so many different, you know, time frames, and so many different uh, narratives. Um, I think from that, I just try to piece together exactly how, you know, the market. Um, could evolve and it's always like di- like different probabilities different possibilities but i think that the important thing for me is like i try to be as open-minded as possible to all the possibilities being being likely in some world yeah i mean i would just add that being probabilistic in your mindset and not being absolute having some modesty um not thinking that you know this is 100 percent gonna happen that really unleashes so much power because you open your mind to many more pieces of information that you would otherwise be close to. Especially like once you start owning an asset and you start being part of that community and the ecosystem around it, you can very easily get into cognitive biases where you're blocking out information that might actually fundamentally uh, warrant a a change in your thesis. And keeping an open mind and knowing that, okay, even though like this is my current position, um, I should be open to other possibilities, Mm -hmm. I think is key. And with people that are very good at investing, the clearest point in their thinking is always when they're transitioning narratives because they've had to drop a belief that they've had for some time and maybe even publicly stated. So there is kind of like this loss involved. If they're willing to pay that price, you should probably listen because that's a point at which they're thinking clearly enough that they're willing to take kind of a, a short-term loss. Mm-hmm. This actually plays nicely into something that you taught me like a couple of days ago, so that gave me a lot to think about. That you pride yourself most on the the moments where you basically uh, you were wrong, but I mean the process of even identifying that you were wrong is like usually a big profit opportunity, right? Yeah, because usually when you realize that you're wrong, uh, the con- I mean at least for me, I think one of my skills for a long time as a trick trader is. When I realize I'm wrong, I realize exactly why it's wrong and and how the counter arguments are e- e- like even stronger because I also understand the people that 
would have had those similar beliefs to me. So basically, I, I think the key is like in the moment of understanding where you're wrong, mm-hmm. the totality of the arguments that you understand from both sides of, of any position, that's like your peak illumination, basically. Mm-hmm. It's like you, you basically see exactly what's going to happen next almost. I think a good example of this was like, you know, like the market when it bounced off 29.5 again after, you know, sitting there for 24 hours. I think that was a moment where like it was a clear buy-in opportunity, um, you know, because at that point you you just kind of saw that um, there were no sellers left. And you just also saw that, you know, how little volume it took to even support that price and 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 how sort of casually it could bounce repeatedly. I think there were a few other elements there too, but just that, that kind of being willing to say, okay, you know, it's time to go all in again. You know, that that kind of mentality, you know, is is something that it if you're the type of person to want to be right all the time, it feels bad to have to invalidate yourself. Whereas if you're the type of person to uh, take pride in being wrong but being able to profit from that, then mm-hmm. these are the best opportunities of your career usually. So. That's why I, I shouldn't be a trader. <laughs> you also, in that context, um, you you often mention sort of the idea of, you know, Bayesian thinking. Um, how would you convey this idea, you know, to our listeners? It's all about taking in new information, right? Like each day you get more information about what just happened. Um, and if you're, if you're, if your decisions don't change based on that, that could be correct because you could have considered it and then said what I'm doing right now is still correct. But there are, have to be times when that changes, right? It could be that you get even more bullish and you buy even more, or it could be that you get bearish and you sell some, but, but there's always value in information. So, you know, I love that idea of like you flood your brain with information because the subconscious is incredibly powerful in discretionary decision-making. I, 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 you know, I mean, Colin and I, we stand by it. Whenever we interview traders in the past, like if they don't have this kind of understanding of the importance of discretionary, I always distrust them naturally because I I don't know if they can, you know, handle all sorts of markets or, or you know, handle all sorts of situations. But I think like, you know, that that kind of understanding of of taking in information every day and then doing something with it, um that that has to be part of like every trader's process. Um because otherwise you're sitting duck, right? And and so it also does contrast with the idea of like the long-term investor in a sense, because the long-term investor, he has, there's kind of the myth of the long-term investor, right? Where he buys the coins and he goes into a coma for five years. And that's also good if you're an investor. But then, you know, if you are making decisions like every day, every other day, every week, then you have to also hold yourself to that standard. So it's fine to almost like compartmentalize it and say, you know, if I buy Bitcoin and Ether for cold storage, I put it away. But if I'm mm-hmm. also trying to beat the markets, then I have to be taking in new information. I can't sort of mix the timeframes. I mean, in terms of that rejection of 30K, it was it was such a strong rejection as well. It, the second time it bounced was so powerful that it, you know, if you're thinking in a Bayesian way and you have, you know, these two possible worlds, like, do you believe in a sub 30K Bitcoin possible world or do you not believe in it? I think it was such a strong amount of new evidence that under 30K, there's there are like last resort buyers that are there that when you add the new information, the risk reward suddenly just goes so much higher. Because if you know that no matter worst case, like if you have an emergency, you can always sell at least a 30K, the upside of, you know, 60, 100 plus, it makes the balance of the risk and the reward so much higher than 32 or 33. And I think this explosive move started based on that understanding that there is a 
there is actually a floor. That's the new information. Um, and then I was very hesitant around 40 because we were expecting a huge amount of new information to come in, which is what does the U.S. government do? We already knew what China was doing. This was sort of priced in. But then you have this completely like new piece of the puzzle, which is, okay, someone's trying to attack crypto. It's the treasury. What's actually going to happen? And I think when the muscle that we saw from uh, the crypto community lobbying senators and, and really kind of, even though in the end they didn't actually manage to pass an amendment, we collectively saw that the emperor does have clothes on. There is like a power politically as well now that should provide some cover going forward. And I think that's kind of been this next leg now. I want to ask both of you. So how do you generally deal with, you know, large events of uncertainty? You know, there's an event upcoming that has a big impact, could be up or down. How do you position around that? I always like to know what game I'm playing and I like to know if I'm having more information than the other players. Whenever I feel like there's inside information that I'm missing, I try to be very cautious. Um, there have been a few big trades where I have, despite that, kind of dabbled in. There was a big mobile coin trade last year where somebody had put on a $400 million short on FTX. We had really had no idea exactly what was happening there, who was putting in what was happening. Um, I usually like to know who I'm, up against, who I'm up against, like who's on the other side of the board. I like to understand their psychology and what's happening. This was a situation where I tried to find out. Nobody really knew, um, but I thought that the bet was still worth making. So occasionally, like even despite not having information, um, I will make a strong play. But usually I'll take the chips off the table if I feel like somebody else has more inside information. I think events, there's almost no one way to play them. I mean, almost the idea of an event-driven trade. There are some events where, because everyone expects X and then X comes, you know, and you see this in, in global macro all the time where, you know, when when normal people, when they see news, they're like, how come the market did this? Like, even though it was bearish, it's because, well, it wasn't more bearish than that. Or it was, the, the market was already positioned in a way that uh, sort of made the, the like the move the most natural outcome of the release of you know it's like a, it's like a release of pressure basically so I kind of see the Senate thing as almost that where you know we did get in fact one of the worst case scenarios for the amendments but it doesn't matter because a lot of people actually de-risked in front of it too going into especially when we first rejected off forty two the first time you know people just thought okay well I saw some here worst case I buy back higher and and so you had a lot of that happening and 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 so. And so there's kind of like these Rubicons, right, that happen in the markets. We had that in January as well with the Mnuchin FUD, where, you know, I think it was actually December-ish. But basically, everyone was scared of the Mnuchin travel rule FUD, and then the market just ripped through everyone because, because of all that fear. And then, you know, when it turned out to be not as bad as people thought, you know, the pressure upward is really high. So I almost think like whenever mm -hmm. we see FUD, you have to be really careful about buying or selling or these kind of things like... It, it depending like there's no news that's bullish or bearish, but thinking makes it so. I, I strongly believe this in in crypto, especially yeah. because it's so early. You know, Bitcoin, Ether, these kind of things can go up four x from here with like no similar macro convergence happening in like stocks, gold rates. You know, it, it's just it's just too early, and and especially when you get into altcoins, right? Mm -hmm. Like like any altcoin can five x without like needing there to be a strong reason in the global macro or in sort of like event-driven space. Like the unlocks especially, right? Almost all these unlocks have been very bullish, but if from yeah. a 
from the kind of person where like, wow, investors must be selling these unlocks. Well, what if they don't? What if they don't need the money, right? What if they believe in the project? So, or what if they are, have sold OTC or whatever? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I had an, an eye-opening moment like this, basically when I heard um, Light on uh, Up Only a couple of months ago or something. I think it was be the episode before the Coinbase IPO. And uh, the question was if he believes in like the super cycle, right? And he said it doesn't matter how bullish the fundamentals of a market are because the prices are still set, you know, by humans, right? And um, like it doesn't matter how good the market is. Like the prices can still get exuberant. Like even like the most fundamentally strong market can crash. And likewise, you know, the most fundamentally weak, weak market can rip, right? Because the price is only like basically the result of, you know, expectations that people have in relation to whatever the market is. I think too, when he's talking about super cycle, um, I think what, what he's trying to say is that, um, e e like even if uh, the fundamentals are very good, uh, it doesn't mean, like, like we're almost like using different meanings for the word super cycle. Like I think for me when I used it or when I kind of coined it on up only, I kind of think the basic idea is that crypto just reaches mass penetration, mass adoption across the world. Right, you know, yeah. whether that's in the form of Bitcoin, hyper monetization, store of value thesis, or you know, on top of that, Web three, as well, uh, smart contract, programmable money, uh, just the the idea that, that this is sort sort of the most important trend of our generation. Um, I think that 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 is a very different kind of understanding of super cycle than the the understanding that some people have, which is that you know the the market can't nuke randomly. Um, yeah, you know. Because it's almost like it's almost like we're seeing a lot of super cycle stuff type stuff happening now, right? The past few weeks, where you have Ted Cruz being very pro Bitcoin, and you have you know you you have Texas going and courting miners, you 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 have serious sort of uh, geopolitical convergence uh, on the value of of Bitcoin, and I think that this kind of stuff, you know, it's it's people ignore this stuff at their peril. I think. And I mean, we've already seen like that this cycle is different from previous cycles that like, we've never seen a, like a break to the downside as big as this cycle without it being a bear market. Right. Yeah. And um, so like we know we are in a different regime and it's meaningfully different from all past cycles. But nobody really has yet presented like a, 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 like a thesis that's more appealing and more predictable than, you know, it being like a super cycle where basically some of the original cyclicality is lost. And yes, even in this drop, we have seen relentless investing and allocation from outsiders, right? Several billion dollar funds raising even when crypto was down 50%, right? It, this stuff did not happen in the last cycles. I think something like pronounced in this cycle that um, maybe Sue will disagree, we can, we can discuss a little bit, but the effect of Bitcoin dominance on the crypto cycle in general, um, I feel has been very powerful. Um, basically, you know, we had this huge narrative of digital gold last year. It was a very strong meme. Um, a lot of money and institutions and hedge fund managers piled in towards the end of 2020. And then once Bitcoin started stalling out around, let's call it 55, where the incremental moves every day stopped being parabolic and there were sort of, you know, Bitcoin would go up one or 2%. And then, you know, you look at CoinGecko and you have the top 100 coins on average between 20 to 40% up that day. Um, it sort of created this fear-greed imbalance where a lot of people just 
went for, you know, what's going to give me a high return, exited Bitcoin. And the Bitcoin, Bitcoin dominance going down can only be sustained to a certain level because at some point somebody looks at, you know, what we've created, which is just built a bunch of clouds upon clouds and, you know, things that are not fundamentally rooted anywhere, um, where the digital gold narrative was no longer driving a lot of the prices in, in the whole space. Having this correction that we had now to 30K, normally like it would be the end of the cycle because it's either like macro driven where like, you know, the liquidity is being just sucked out of the system entirely um, or it'll be, you know, some regulatory driven. But I feel like what happened was, you know, you had Elon, you had this ESG FUD, um, you had Bitcoin stalling out versus altcoins. So people were just sort of ditching it um, for everything from Ethereum down. Um, and then the cycle sort of reset itself. And it's building again, sort of through Bitcoin strength. And we're going to sort of have these iterative cycles, I believe. Um, it is a, sort of one way to get reach an equilibrium where you kind of progress through cycles of Bitcoin strength. Bitcoin weakness crashes the market as soon as Bitcoin stalls. And we kind of keep progressing up. And that is a way that you get a super cycle as well. Yeah, I mean, I agree with a lot of that. I get I think one of the points that it does take a lot of time in the markets to usually understand, and I, and I did find it impressive that Jordy kind of caught onto this quite early on from studying crypto, but it's that when you have a Bitcoin-led market, it always will lead to an alt season because Bitcoin wealth is created and then Bitcoin sell walls by OGs, by profit takers, uh, by rotators, uh, then lead to Ether going up, a lot of other coins going up. This has been the way of the market for four years now. I think that there's a also there's basically in my mind broadly two types of worlds that can happen in crypto. There, there's a world where we get Bitcoin up to twenty trillion market cap, twenty to fifty trillion market cap, and then the sum of altcoins, the sum of other coins will be around two to ten trillion, two to five trillion. Um, so something a lot less. Um, and what that kind of a world or you have a world where it's much more distributed right um where where you have you know ethereum maybe you know 10 trillion the next one being like 6 trillion the next one being 4 trillion these kind of distributions i think that the reason i believe this is that um if you if you have a very high bitcoin dominance market um then all other coins they get valued with much less monetary premium um, and they get valued um, in terms of versus each other more so than versus Bitcoin. Right now, we're in an interesting spot where, or we have been in an interesting spot where Ether has has contended for the throne quite aggressively, I think, in the past few months. And there is this desire to value Ether as a percentage of Bitcoin market cap and indeed to even flip it, right? And so from this, you would have a very strong Ether price in the market. And this then puts a lot of value into alt layer one and into application layer, uh, but especially into alt layer one, because then a lot of alt layer one contend as a percentage of Ether market cap, right? Where, you know, Sol should be X percent of that or Avalanche or, you know, Polkadot. And, and so you get this kind of like, um, you know, this kind of postmodern intersubjective value thing where it's like you can only value things versus other things. And because Ether contends to the Bitcoin throne and then things contend to the Ether throne, you have this kind of lower Bitcoin dominance market in this kind of environment. So the ways we get out of that, there are two ways, right? One is that Ether flippants Bitcoin. 
And then we get into this world where, you know, uh, we have very, very highly valued smart contract chains, basically. Um, and we have very sort of fast turnover, very hyper-capitalist, basically, it's kind of a system. And I think that that's a very possible world. Um, another one is that Bitcoin, uh, you know, the people in society who are really going to put money into the space as a store of value, they buy a lot of Bitcoin because they see that it's uh, the that it can't be disrupted by tech. You know, you have more political or philosophically uh, inclined buyers. And as this ha keeps happening and, and, and as the rest of the pie keeps you know, splitting, uh, you have it pull away again, right? Because right now, the market is in a situation where they don't really understand that Bitcoin can pump again. Uh, but if they now see that it can pump while other coins don't go up by as much, you know, it, 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 all, it all turns very fast, basically. So... Um, but but the, these are really the only two worlds that we can be in, I think, um, from what I understand of crypto. Because if you if you can imagine, right, like it's very difficult to flip Bitcoin and then have the next coin be ninety percent of dominance, because you will have already broken the veil of uh, of of the idea that because it is the first, therefore it will collect everything. Right? You are now fully in the world of tech. Uh, you are fully in the world of of internet stocks. And once you're in that world, people will then happily value the second one at half or a third of the first one, like they did with Ether and Bitcoin, right? So you get this fractal like kind of behavior even much more so. So it'll be very exciting. I mean, in that world, there will be absolutely insane profit opportunities. I, th I think like knowing what game you're playing is, is a key learning um, for playing games, for investing and for trading understanding the game you're in, um, you know, what's your time horizon, who, who are your opponents, what are you actually trying to do? And for me, like, ETH does have a little bit of a problem in terms of knowing what game it's playing. Is it trying to tackle the store of value? You know, you had people going out and talking about ultrasound money. Um, and then at the same time, you know, they are in a knife fight right now with a lot of layer ones. And, you know, the layer two rollout is, you know, it's messy. You have Matic, which is unclear. Um, you know, how that's going to progress once the new ones come out. Eventually, like a lot of the layer ones will maybe even kind of compete with ETH on its sort of throne of smart contracts. So knowing what game you're trying to play um, can at least clear up a lot of the fog around your strategy, I think. I would defend ETH there to, the, to, to some newcomers uh, in the space who I think they look at Ethan Bitcoin and Bitcoin appeals to a lot of uh, people who are very objectivist. So they see Bitcoin is simple, it's clean, it's pure, it can't be corrupted in the same ways as other coins. But you know, Ether is kind of the Ether kind of inherits the throne, like almost from the old Bitcoin, like the old. I mean, some of the ones who went to Bitcoin Cash or something like. But it, it inherits the throne of the idea that the money which has the most you know, activity, that'll be the real money that we use in the long term. So I think this argument is actually, it's very strong, I think, as well. So I think that there are definitely two sides to that stone, where I think what we're basically going to have to see is, are the philosophical buyers, are the philosophical qualities of Bitcoin stronger than the sort of, um, you know, fast-moving, you know, fast-dealing economy of Ethereum, right? Because there are some worlds where, let's say, you even get a lot of smart contract activity on other chains, but Ether still benefits because it is the, you know, the the most commonly used money. It's the most deflationary money uh, among cryptocurrencies. Uh, like that could be a world. Conversely, if 
the smart contract activity moves, that does hurt the EIP 1559 meme quite a bit because you're saying that this burn will happen a lot due to activity, but then activity all goes elsewhere. You know, fees keep moving off layer one. That would then hurt that meme. Um, there's also potentially a problem if you get the sort of sense that, um, you know, ETH is basically, if it optimizes for holders as opposed to users, um, then you do run into a risk of more political attacks. You, you kind of run into the risk that Ethereum goes more in the way that what Bitcoin, what happened to Bitcoin in 2017, which is that you start getting more and more battles, more and more stalling, more and more sort of, sort of complex game theory of uh, like among the constituents of Ethereum as well. So I think that like the inherent strengths of ETH are are sort of earned from those weaknesses that it creates as well for itself, right? Like you don't get anything for free, basically. Um, but I would say like in the long run, it's it's not basically this kind of a classic example of like we don't even know if we have the right framework to analyze what will be the future money, right? Um, I think one thing that is true throughout history, though, that I would say is not talked about nearly enough when this discussion is had is the distribution. Um, it's talked about generally, you know, what's like the number of uh, wallet holders or like, you know, does somebody have 30% of Dogecoin? Um, the distribution argument is key because it ties into human psychology. It ties into incentives. It ties into like the base effect of the game, which is you know, you have politicians, you have people around the world, they're just reacting to individual people's incentives. They're not reacting to what's a better, slightly better, you know, TPS or like, you know, which one's going to scale a little bit faster. They're really reacting to, you know, who's economically aligned, who's incentivized to support something. As you get like presidents supporting, you know, Bitcoin or like something else, that will affect things in, in, a, in a huge scale. And having a, a coin, for example, like Dogecoin, the reason that I can see like stalling at some point potentially is if you do have, you know, one or two wallets that have 30% of the entire supply, can that thing really be worth a trillion dollars when there's going to be $300 billion sitting there? There is something very unstable in that. While Bitcoin being first, having had the largest distribution around the world, the largest amount of holders, the amount of incentive um, to allow it to survive and thrive is deeply ingrained in a way that can't be reproduced. And I would say, I would say this, I've done this thought experiment thinking about, you know, what would the perfect money look like? You can design something a little bit better than Bitcoin, you know, technology wise, even inflation wise, you can have just like a constant 1% inflation to stop people from hoarding too much. Cause you, you ultimately do want to have a little bit of inflation, I think. Um, Plus the security the, issue. Also for security, um, but also just, you know, when you when you look at fiat or gold or anything else, having a little bit of inflation stops people from not spending and hoarding it and it allows this healthy circulation of the capital. And that's ultimately good. And I would say the first thing I would do if if I was able to design this technology and, and you know, we had this perfect crypto, I would start off by saying, you know, you can do a one for one switch with your Bitcoin and just get this other coin because the value of that network, the distribution being somewhat tied to real world distribution, because in the real world, you know, you have, you know, the U S government having X amount of money, Saudis having X amount of money, China has, you know, this percentage. If one of these countries is completely unable to participate, um, in a currency, they will not 
allow it to survive or thrive in their community. You know, also on the issue of sort of distribution, I think one thing that people have long underestimated in Bitcoin is sort of um, counting miners also as important holders, right? Mining, I think that's one of the like core things that I've tried to like convey for the last couple of years is that like hard, mining hardware is basically is basically um, physical futures on Bitcoin that you get delivered at some point. Um, so miners are, you know, structurally long Bitcoin. And I think we've seen now, or we are seeing now what sort of downstream effects that creates in the political game, right? Um, where um, countries are rallying behind Bitcoin instead of other coins, like a big like Thai um, telecommunications company, like getting big, in, big into Bitcoin mining, Texas going big into Bitcoin mining and lobbying for it in like the Senate. Um, I think like these sort of alliances um, are ultimately very important as well. And this is something where your coin benefits, I think, a lot from having uh, like a, um, a hetero genius uh, distribution of holders. It's not like holders from like very different like backgrounds and colors. And I think it's not, this is something that you're definitely going to lose in like a proof of stake system where sort of your node, your validators are the same as your coin holders. Yeah, I think one of the biggest reasons that, you know, we became sort of much more bullish on Bitcoin recently too was um, I had dinner with Balazs the other day and he he kind of impressed on me the idea of that Bitcoin would become the flag of liberty for the Western conservative establishment. And he said that this was something that in a in a secular post-religion world, in a, in a sort of woke capitalist uh, versus, you know, non-woke capitalist world, like Bitcoin is the clearest rallying cry. Uh, that, uh, you know, especially for the GOP Tea Party, he said. Uh, so this kind of, um, you know, complete uh, mind uh, share, you know, mind space capture that Bitcoin has been able to achieve it among these types. He, he sees it as um, incredibly powerful because he says like, you know, you will have people willing to fight wars for Bitcoin in that kind of a case, right? Whereas same is not true for any other coin. Um, and so I think that that's something that I do think that, you know, I mean, we've been around talking about markets for since 2018, right, Hasu? I mean, we've seen money thesis versus tech thesis all day, all night. I do think we're in a moment where the money thesis of crypto is very misunderstood by a lot of people. Um, you know, there are some people out there that think that it's all tech thesis. And I do think we're, we could get a resurgence of money thesis um, from some of the things that we see happening, right? Like the, the, the reason why the like the reason why you know bitcoin as it goes up this time if it were to keep going up um there are actually a lot of virtuous uh cycle type stuff that could happen right like african countries now that they know that bitcoin will really not disappear that it's part of a new global world new world order they'll enter mining right they'll actually go and say okay well we have this energy here we have this energy there let's start mining Let, let's start doing this let's start doing that you can now do multi-billion dollar infrastructure projects assuming the existence of Bitcoin long-term. And so this then creates even more stakeholders bringing them into the system. And this flywheel um, can mean that every country then has this, right? And I think especially for the GOP, um, the reason why they see this as so strong is because they're also kind of broadly advocating for almost a type of 
a new, like a neutrality or like a freedom, right? Where they're saying, you know, the like the woke capitalism wants to be able to say you use energy for X and that's bad. We don't like what you do. Hence, we want to be able to stop you from doing things with energy. And then for the GOP, for the libertarians, they say, well, we don't want government to be able to decide what is a good use of energy or not. We let the people decide. So if the people decide this, this is what they should do. So I think that there's that big philosophical, political debate that happens there. And I think because of that, like Bitcoin is almost like the purest play for them to, to uh, win sort of their broad political mandate to have that kind of world exist as opposed to the world where we are indeed in woke capitalism where, um, you know, like everything that everyone ever does can be canceled because it's like not in line with what people are supposed to be doing at that time. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like the money versus tech thesis is going through its own cycles, right? Where sometimes you have the money, the money thesis rule, and then you get more and more tech and people start to question, well, can the money, you know, is the money actually like, can it win against the tech because the tech is so new and shiny? But then what happens is the tech can be copied while the money can't. Yes. And then you get like a supply basically flooding the market of new tech coins. And that's exactly what we see with all the layer ones, right? We see so many layer ones, but they have very little activity, but they are all very new tech. And um, I think they compete much more with Ethereum, which is kind of a no-brainer than with Bitcoin, right? And at the moment where people see that there's a lot of competition with Ethereum, they automatically go back into Bitcoin. So on the on the issue of politics, were you surprised, you know, how many people started to rally behind crypto during the sort of infrastructure bill issue? It was a pleasant surprise. Um, I think we were all kind of unclear what the balance of power would be um, on the U.S. side. It's the first time we've seen that politically, like it could be a single voter issue in the future. Um, just as you have guns and other issues in the U.S. being so uh, dominant for individual voters, if their economic livelihood is, you know, basically attached to Bitcoin or crypto in general. You can see that overriding any other issue for them, um, especially with how messy the politics has gotten on every other issue in the U.S. That I think a sort of constituent that focuses purely on this will drive a lot of political power. Um, but it's going to take a while. And I think it's a little bit overplayed right now. Um, maybe like in 10 years, once millennials are kind of a much bigger part of the voting population, um, a lot of the kind of boomers are, are not voting anymore. That will be even more powerful. So I think that's a long-term trend. But at least in terms of being worried that we're going to get shut down across the board over the next uh, you know year, I think things are looking a lot better now. Yeah, I think I've been a little surprised by how weak actually uh, Yellen or the Treasury was after the bills started to 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 go around, where they then, you know, expressed the things that they uh, 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 like. Kind of, they kind of agreed that um, on the exemptions as well, and it kind of seemed like they just really wanted to to put up a fight, but they weren't that committed to the fight because they didn't want to have to deal with the political battles. Um, so, I think that that almost is a real interesting kind of experiment about governance, right? Because China, the example is, is, is the opposite where, you know, the high command says that th this is not something that we like and therefore we do this, this and that. Whereas 
America, you know, even if the millennials don't have the voting block yet, just like the, the backward induction, just the threat of the future voting block is already scaring a lot of people. And people are asking themselves, is this really a battle I want to, you know, do I really want to die on this hill being anti-crypto? Do I really want to, you know, go out this way? And 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 so that um, effect, I definitely feel like is is getting really big in the U.S. because I see broad appeal for crypto now across um, across um, the population. Right? You you seeing like you're seeing like Gen Gen Z to talk about NFTs all day. They're talking about you know, creator economy, you're, you're, you're seeing, you know, the boomers who follow Michael Saylor, they're talking about, you know, sound money, they're talking about, you know, re return to standards. And, and so there's something for everyone, basically. Uh, I think what crypto really does is it allows these kind of like micro communities to, to, to share ideas and then to, to say, okay, you know what, we value the things that, you know, we agree to value these things. Uh, and, and we agree that, um, you know, we respect each other and, and, and these are the things we all adhere to. And so that's why I think, uh, this is really dangerous stuff for politicians to be against, right? Because you're 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 going to put yourself in a situation where the people who might be on your side are essentially this kind of vague, you know, semi-authoritarian status concepts of you know we need to be able to track everything, we need to be panopticon, and on the opposite side of you are you know all your voters, all like all the actual people of society. So I think it's a, it's actually a grand it's it's actually a grand victory for individuals versus you know it, it sort of just really proves that individuals make up the government it's not the government as a separate thing from individuals. Jordi, you mentioned earlier sort of what makes you good at you know playing a variety of different games is that you um, you sort of have these Lego blocks right these abstractions that are the same across many games and then when you find a new game you can already already identify that it has like this or this abstraction in it and you know exactly like how to deal with that particular scenario like sort of an auction game or like a coordination game or like a discoordination game and so on so i would be curious to hear like exactly how you apply this to crypto what games what abstractions do you see in crypto um and how do you act on them yeah i mean one that you see a lot um especially in the DeFi space uh, where it's less about memes and, you know, you're supposed to have, you know, different tokens representing flows of cash from a project. Something that builds into building blocks around that is the concept of, you know, is this a Ponzi game or is this like a game that has fundamental value? So everything looks at like it has fundamental value because nobody wants to sort of appear as, you know, if you're in doing something like yield farming, you ultimately want to have some value proposition. So even though we have a lot of DEXs, like Radium will say that, well, we're putting our stuff on, um, you know, uh, the order book of Serum. So this kind of makes us unique. Somebody else will say like, well, one inch, we're just aggregating things. And, you know, you can all, I'll go down the list. There's a lot that you kind of question whether they're actually adding something substantial. And if they're not, you can kind of predict a very normal building block, which is kind of like the Ponzi building block. What that looks like is there is this like initial surge of enthusiasm, high yields, high TVL. It just kind of feeds on itself where the yields keep going up because the, the token price, your liquidity mining keeps going up. So you have this like effect of this virtuous cycle. Um, people just join in because they see the yields up. At some point, either because of like a supply shock, you know, there's like an unlock, um, or potentially the the period of the initial, you know, two months or three month incentive goes away. 
that's where you see things peaking. The yield starts flattening or going down. Other projects have better yield. And once the TVL starts leaving, you kind of go in this downward spiral. Um, so it's a very predictable building block that I have in my mind whenever I'm evaluating like a new project, either for VC investment or for yield farming. So what I like to think about is like, would this exist without the money-making mechanism? Does it have enough sort of use that people will use it even if they're not, you know, yield farming um, for, for a little bit? So Axie Infinity is, is a good example where you see that people in Philippines are doing it because they're making money. Um, not necessarily like World of Warcraft people who are trying to, you know, buy a very unique um, item. So we'll see how that plays out. Um, yeah, I think this, uh, this sort of is the same as we talked about in our YAM episode, right? So where you sort of introduced the concept of like the pool one, pool two game. And I think this is one that you can find like all across DeFi. And I think that's, it's, it's always very important that you recognize when projects use these kind of building blocks where you need a token, you know, a project's native token in order to farm more of that project's native token, right? And so it's sort of the demand for that token that bootstraps the price of that token. And, you know, if either of them reverses, then, you know, both both reverse at the same time and you get this like huge deleveraging in TVL and price. Um, what would be... What would be another game? So on the meme side, which is like the other part of the market, you know, getting away from the sort of fundamental equity investment side of the DeFi side, if you go into the meme side of the game, you know, touching upon like Dogecoin, Shiba Inu, like this, this type of economy, that becomes very much a coordinated game where, you know, if you want the price to go up, you have to kind of have all the, almost like a religious um, mm. aspect to your approach where you're creating a community, you're even ostracizing people who leave the community, you know, who are selling, you know, you're obviously Bitcoin has had some of this, you know, with the whole sort of have fun, staying poor and all, all this kind of aspect as well, but even Hodl. more so in the meme, meme coin community. Sorry. Hodl. I mean, the original HODL meme. HODL. I mean, HODL is kind of more positive. I would say I'm even talking about like the negative side where, you know, someone, someone's attacking and you kind of go after them very hard. Um, so it, Anyone who is kind of against the in-group um, gets sort of ostracized. That That's kind of a very common thing. So with things like Dogecoin um, and Shiba Inu, it just becomes a pure... It's, it's, a, it's a game where the community has to have, to really succeed, they have to have like a vision that they're all, they all share and they're moving towards. There has to be co cohesion. Nobody can just like, you know, sell out and just kind of dump on everybody else. Um, as soon as that pump and dump dynamic gets created, the thing falls apart. So you need to have this like coordination aspect. I think Dogecoin looked, and I know, I know Sue's bullish on Dogecoin. I'm kind of bullish in, in pieces and then they get very bearish and kind of, I try to trade it as a trader more. I know that that one, it looked like there was some coordination by Elon Musk where you could say that, You know, it has a leader and it, and, and they're kind of following him on SNL. They're following him on different places. And potentially like they can coordinate quite a lot more than a headless token. Um, but I feel like Elon has kind of shown himself to be a little bit unreliable. Although I have to say like recently with the foundation and Vitalik, you know, some of these things can, can create some long-term coordination. Um, I don't know. What do you think about that one, Sue? Um, I'm very bullish Dogecoin. Uh, I've 
delved into the community, delved into what's been happening and what's um, what's kind of the broader thesis for people that own Doge, both in terms of normal people as well as, you know, investors. And I think there's a, I mean, the best way to understand Doge, I think, is that uh, if, you, if you look at Robinhood, which is sort of the most like blue collar style, just like of crypto investing, Doge is 60% of their crypto revenue. And crypto is 40% of Robinhood revenue. So Robinhood is basically a Doge uh, proxy. And I think that that Doge has actually four times the name brand recognition over Ethereum uh, in many communities in the US. Not talking about like smart people, but just talking about people, right? Um, So I think that um, there's something just like very understandable about Doge. Right, it's just like the dog money. You put your money in dog money, uh, <laughs> and there's also something. This is the only coin I've ever seen women show other women. If you just look on social media, you look on TikTok, Instagram, Doge is the only coin where you can see a woman shilling another woman, and and not being paid to do so, but just doing so because like she likes the coin, and and so I think that Doge is like really underestimated in terms of just that sheer virality and sort of the quality of the memes and the organicness of that. I, I, I do think that Elon, he, he is a strength and a weakness for Doge. Obviously, it net like a huge strength. Um, and I think he believes in it actually uh, in a much stronger way than people realize. Like a lot, a lot of people, when they analyze like Elon, they think he's just doing it for kicks, you know, shits and giggles, whatever. He's just doing it because he thinks it's funny. But I think he has real commitment to it, right? He, he's been talking about Doge for a very long time, his early followers of it have gotten incredibly wealthy on Doge. Uh, and they understand his concept, I think, which is a, which is almost like a William Bryan Jennings game theory. It's like a, it's like a neo-populist concept where he says, you know, like Bitcoin will be the gold, but the real silver is actually Doge. It's not Litecoin or it's not something else. It's actually Doge because it is the coin that people can own like, like whole amounts of. It's the coin that uh, can be sent around to, uh, among people so it can have a high velocity um, and also uh, its memes are simple you know like the like the man who drinks beer can understand it you know the like the girl who posts selfies uh, can understand it and she can just put her money in it and outperform everybody right like if you bought doge in January you're up versus everybody but getting away from the money thesis you know I made X return because obviously like that drives a lot of people you know I just want to make like a 10x bagger or 20x bagger when you're talking about like the the real reasons why those people want to hold it I can understand that you know there's a community aspect for the laws obviously it started off as you know this thing on Reddit where people would like tip each other and that was a lot more for like entertainment and enjoyment but when you touch about like digital silver and these things I started to question it a little bit because things like Dogecoin Acting as a store of value, you know, what is value? It means somebody is willing to work or, or you know, give their assets for that thing. Um, you know, somebody will, if their kids are going to go to college, they're going to like, you know, they're put their money in this store of value so that in 20 years, their kids are going to be able to afford to go to college. I don't see how like something that is kind of like a meme coin, even though it brings a lot of happiness and enjoyment to people can really reach that next level of storing value. Like, are we? It's already happened, though, right? I mean, it's already happened. I mean, if if that were not possible, then then it would not have already become sixty percent of Robinhood holdings, right? And Robinhood are actually the real people that you need to buy your your, your other coins. 
right? Like everyone wishes that their coin could be bought by Robinhood people, but instead Robinhood people are actually buying Doge and then they're not, and they're buying it not even because they're shilled that hard by anybody. They're buying it because they see all the coins and they're like, you know what, Doge, I like, I like Doge. And that, that, that virality of like normies shilling normies is only happening on Doge. It is happening to a lesser extent on some other coins, but it reminds me of XRP of the previous cycle, but just better in every way. Because one, there's no foundation that has a ton of it. There's no reliance on a on an elaborate banks using it for payments narrative. It is just clean. It is just simple. And it is also a fair launch, by the way. So like there's no risk of it having like ever become deemed a security, right? There's no risk of it having any regulatory issues ever. So I think that like there's this big concept in crypto, I think, where it's just that like crypto needs to be serious. And like the coins that are not serious are, are therefore like somehow like not going to make it. But, but I think that Doge, what it does show people, uh, and I mean, I mean, Doge pisses off a lot of natives because like basically like everyone is down in Doge, right? Like there's no one who's not down in Doge. Like you thought you were late in 2018. If you bought Doge, you, you, you have a billion dollars. So the, there's like every native is down in Doge, so it pisses them off. Like normies are up way more in Doge than they are, are like versus natives. So... It, it's, it's in a way, it's almost like Bitcoin was to the traditional finance. Doge is to traditional crypto because it is just so simple, so obvious, but everyone misses it. You see? Absolutely. No, absolutely. But the difference I would say is like how strong are the beliefs of the underlying holders? Because there's people who, you know, will hold Bitcoin to their death. Like they're, they're so like strongly minded about, you know, sound money and what that means. With Dogecoin, once things stall out, and this is the same thing for XRP. If you just go from first principles and you say, you know, a lot of this community is there just because they want the return. You know, they, they see the returns, they want to get rich. When moon, when moon. So at some point, even if it's like 10x from now, 20x, 50x from now, it'll stall out, right? Like it'll reach a point where it just can't grow anymore. So at that point, you get this like reflexivity on the way down as well. I actually see the opposite of that, where I've seen a lot more interest from Bitcoin people to sell to Ether than I have. Like if you go into the communities, to, like for, for Dogecoin people to sell to other coins. And I think the reason is, again, this kind of, this big dilemma of like, how serious are you about crypto, right? Like the Dogecoin buyer, he buys a thousand bucks of it. He's not like you. He's not giving two fucks about it. He's not thinking about which coin he needs to buy next. He buys the dog coin because he hears his friends buying it and they're all up money on it. And he also likes it. And he's also up, he knows if he waits long enough, he's up money on it because the chart is so strong and so parabolic. And, and so, whereas the, a lot of the Bitcoin investors that have come in, especially the last year, they come in and then as soon as people talk about ultrasound money, they're like, okay, now I need to sell my Bitcoin for ETH. And then they, I need to sell my ETH for Sol. I need to sell my Sol for AVAX. You, you're getting a lot of that happening, actually. So it's actually ironic. But um, if you just look at patterns of holdings, like if you just really analyze it, the, like the data, like Doge has actually the strongest like single holding power among like almost like any coin where that... I think is very surprising to people. But if you think about it from a broader point of view, it 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 just shows the value of um like if there is a coin that's owned like between a hundred and a thousand dollars by many people, what coin would that be? I think that's almost the question you need to be asking. Like, will will there be a coin where people who are worth, let's say, between ten thousand and a hundred thousand dollars buy a thousand bucks of this single coin and then don't think about it too hard? 
that coin is Doge, basically. And you already see in the volumes, you, you already see it in the sub. I, I wouldn't bet against this trend because I think that the reasons for this trend are actually incredibly organic relative to what's contrived in a lot of other coins where they have to really do a lot of marketing, really do a lot of stuff. Um, and I think that, you know, Doge having more catalysts as well. I mean, you, you saw you saw Mark Cuban as well. Say, he says 95% of people actually spending Doge in the Mav store. I mean, 95% of the transactions of people actually spending the map store are using Doge. So p- people actually like using Doge. Uh, they like the idea of it move, moving around the economy. Uh, so, I, so I think it, Doge is almost the ultimate, I, like the IQ bell curve trap, I think, because it, it, for people in the middle of the curve, they see it and they're like, this is not serious. This is a dog. How, how can I invest in a dog? And they don't buy it. And then, you know, the, the, the people who don't take crypto so seriously and they don't think about it that hard, they just buy it and, and they don't think about it again. And that's almost the definition of it, right? Where the 100 IQ people, they're projecting their own thought process onto 50 IQ. And they're saying, well, I would think about what coin to own all my life. So therefore, I'll, I'll sell out of my doge when it starts going down. Like, no, the reason he bought it is because he's not thinking about uh, too hard. He just likes the coin. And, and so you, you're getting this very interesting kind of effect of like what actually makes people hold a coin? What actually gets people to go into the community? Uh, and I think for me, like doge is actually the clear winner in terms of capturing that demographic. And and you see this in the Robinhood data. I think it's it's like any argument that Doge would get abandoned after it fell is already refuted in Robinhood data. And we can see it each time Robinhood will post their quarterlies. But this is not something that I think is mirrored as well now, increasingly across Coinbase. I mean, a, a, few, a few days ago, like Doge volume went higher than Ether. You know, it's still very high volumes relative to other coins. On Binance, it's regularly a top three, top five volume coin. Uh, you know, it, it's people want to trade Doge. I mean, one thing I've discussed uh, on the Dogecoin side that I, I do appreciate a lot is, you know, young people feel kind of left out of the financial ecosystem. The asset prices are so high, you know, housing prices in many places are just really unaffordable for a lot of young people. And Dogecoin in a way is kind of like this like Woodstock economic rebellion thing where, you know, I'm going to buy like this dog coin and I know how, you know, dumb it looks. And that's the whole point. It's basically like, it's like an FU to kind of like this like big financial system that's kind of priced everybody else out. And in that aspect, I, I, I do understand like the huge community-led dynamic in it. I just feel like from a game theory perspective, if there's not going to be a lot of coordination, because it is a coordination game, and if you just have, you know, random people in but it for answered, different- but you've almost answered your own question, right? It is, in fact, the coordination point for people who don't want to buy a serious coin. Start from, start from the assumption that you don't want to own a serious coin. Then what coin do you buy? But why make this assumption, you know? Because you guys are serious people, but not everyone's a serious person. You see, <laughs> I'm actually much less serious than you guys, too. So I, I get it. You two are better game theorists than I am, right? Because you're more serious. So it's kind of this, but, this, kind, of, uh, this kind of mentality as well. I mean, so crypto right now is sort of in a stage where people do not take it serious. And I wonder if this is not a big contributor to why Doge can be so popular. And if there was a stock, for example, or like or a commodity that would be like Doge branded or whatever, I, I question if in the traditional market, something like that could have the same amount of success and longevity. And if we believe in the super cycle, then doesn't crypto eventually become a boring market as well? 
Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I think the fundamental of crypto is very meme, is very community. And that's the, almost the entire point of it. And, you know, when you mentioned in the past, like the idea of a meme coin as being very bullish for Bitcoin, when people call it a meme coin, then by extension, you must also extend this to Dogecoin, which has incredibly powerful memes, has actually the biggest meme lord on earth uh, supporting it, has the, you know, I mean, I will, I will say this too, like compared to what I expected the price of GME to be like right now, you know, months later after the initial yeah. spike and the, the price of AMC, it is clear that like, if you get this like huge community event, potentially like the fundamentals start to improve as well. You know, like exactly. get rid of the CEO, exactly. Dogecoin can start doing smart it's, it's Doge. actually the same way that Bitcoin itself grew. I mean, I know some like very OG Bitcoin they're they're super long doge you know you, angelo bdc who's like sort of the hero of the previous cycle like huge bitcoin og mega bullish doge because they just they, they saw the same thing happen in bitcoin because bitcoin also was not so serious for a long time right people are like what is this bitcoin what is this thing you know ether is also not so serious for a long time so i think if a lot of people are interested in it yet it's not seen as so serious that always gets me really interested because it just tells me that like there's something happening here that people don't understand yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, to touch on one thing that is a slightly different game, and I guess Hasu probably can relate to this as well, like uh, based on your comment or just now, if you look at the the alt versus kind of serious coin game, there is a little bit of like, um, you know, it can either be like a, a plus uh, zero, a positive sum game, which basically means we can all win if we all coordinate in a certain way. Um, and there's zero sum games, you know, when you're trading futures on Bitcoin, someone's losing, someone's winning. You, you obviously need somebody on each side. It's a zero sum game. Crypto as a whole can be positive sum, like money can enter the space from outside the space. So this sort of can make everybody in the space richer. Potentially, my, I think maybe Hasu's worry and, and my concern a little bit is too many of these like things that are happening where, you know, you're getting very badly, poorly written code on many projects that results in, you know, huge losses of money from, from people hacking. It makes the headlines, you know, so people see crypto in a way where like I can lose my money very fast. And to be fair, that is true. Like if, if you're not very careful, it is easy to get hacked. That creates this sort of like negative sum for the entire community while, you know, positive headlines can create a positive sum for everybody. And I think as a community overall, the crypto world should, try to put social pressure on things that are bad for the community overall. I think right now people kind of gloss over too many things um, and potentially like allow... But it's very hard to get people to agree on what is good or bad for the community. I mean, if you ask Bitcoiners, Ethereum is bad for the world. If you ask ETH people, they tell you Solana is bad for the world. So, you know, it's very difficult to get consensus on what is good or bad. Absolutely. And this is kind of... Something uh, I was thinking about just today, which is once you're aligned so much with one of these things and, and your mindset is so much supporting it, you start attacking other coins around you that you potentially view as a threat. Yes. And that is actually negative for the overall ecosystem. Yes. Um, so some coordination within the community can actually go a long way. And yeah. the fear is if you have too many things stepping on the same you know, store value thesis or, or this thesis or that thesis, as opposed to kind of being Lego bricks that you can just kind of build together. Um, 
I mean, uh, I think you, you kind of answered also your, your question earlier, like when you said for these meme coins, like, and that includes Bitcoin, like any kind of store of value that has like this coordination game underlying where, you know, all the holders, you know, take each other's hand and, you know, say like, we don't sell, like, um, which is kind of the whole idea, right? Behind all of these coins, right? You, you basically cr create strong hands and, uh, and that makes the coin go up over time and attracts more buyers, like to, to join this community. And for them, it does make sense. It does make sense to a degree to be, you know, tribal and create these like shelling fences against people leaving the community and selling their coins and buying into other coins. And so it's like really hard to get people to do something, you know, what's best for the space versus, you know, what's best for their particular holding. It is an interesting question too, because like, you know, like in, in every crypto cycle, like near the top of it, you got guys saying like, you know, Bitcoin is the Yahoo of crypto. It's going to go to, you know, you, you need to buy the next one, all this kind of stuff. And then people get mad at them after the market dumps because they say like, you know, you, you should have been de defending the Bitcoin shelling point, this and that. But the way I see it is like um, Bitcoin, I, and I think also Ethereum at this point are are here to stay. And I think that there's also a lot of new communities that will come and also end up here to stay. Like I don't think that like the existence of Bitcoin and store value means like that like everyone in crypto has to defend it all the time. It's already big enough. It doesn't need that defense. I do agree that in 2017 it actually really needed it. And I think it got it eventually. But I think in 2021, like Bitcoin doesn't need a defense. Bitcoin, that there's quiet buyers every day. They don't announce they buy. They just, you know, people just buying it and holding it. It's 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 already it's already there. Uh, I think I think Eric Wall just he just put out a tweet saying like, why does he only tweet about either now even though he mainly owns Bitcoin? Well, because he thinks either more interesting stuff happening, but that doesn't mean he's not like just long Bitcoin only uh, or or mainly. And and so I think that you know like it's it's not. It's not as important as it used to be for everyone to like say, but by the way, we we think Bitcoin is a store of value. Like it's just not it's almost I, like, I definitely agree with that. I think like something can have so much power that it just doesn't really lie on if if the idea because ideas are, you know, the most powerful thing in the world. And if the idea is, is strong enough, ultimately the actions of individuals are not as important as kind of like the incentive structure that's built into the idea. Yes, yes. I think so. And I think like Ethereum people will eventually understand this too. I think right now it's kind of at a, it's kind of at like the community is like, is feeling a bit pained because it's like Solana is gaining traction and L2 Arbitrum is really, uh, it's not out yet and, and Optimism has disappointed. And, and so people have kind of like just been upset that scaling is, is going, you know, and then like, and then like the, there was some toxicity in like Matic versus Ethereum people, right? Because People were like saying, okay, well, how does this feed back to Ether value long term? Like what, what, what you guys are doing with this Matic yield farming. Now we have Avalanche yield farming coming out too, which is like 200 mil of incentives, which is going to bridge a lot of value over as well. And and so like, I think I'm I'm long term very bullish on e like, like Ether, Ethereum. If I wasn't like, I wouldn't buy a lot of NFTs on Ethereum, right? Um, but I I do think that like, either we'll have to go through the challenges that Bitcoin has gone through as well, which is that it has to understand that, you know, where it needs to be defensive possibly, but where it needs to be a lot more like, like just open to innovation from other chains, learn from what's happening on, on other chains and, and find ways to work with them as opposed to just like, 
I mean, it, it would be a huge mistake for Ethereum to inherit the Bitcoin maximism toxicity because there it makes even less sense, right? At, at least for Bitcoin, it makes some sense because they're literally just sitting around holding. Whereas for Ethereum, they are actually trying to build a platform. They are trying to build things. Uh, you know, that ties in with something that I've been thinking about like the last two days. Like I wrote on Twitter that like there was sort of this this eagle situation. Eagle is this token that, you know, basically bribes miners to tokenize, you know, the uh, the power to vote over the gas limit. And um, when I, like whenever I write something that's negative about Ethereum, basically we had 10 Bitcoiners like writing follow-up threads or like Bitcoin maximalists, like retweeting that and like saying, look how dumb Ethereum is. Like, <laughs> and then I, I, I said jokingly, like half of the Bitcoin maximalists who still follow me do so, you know, in order to get ammunition to dunk on Ethereum, which is... Maybe that's a bit overstated, but I mean, it's, it's definitely true to a degree. And, um, and like the other half has me sort of blocked or unfollowed or whatever. And I've, I've been thinking, so why is this? Like, why do like people like me sort of feel like driven out of the Bitcoin community? And I think, I think it's because like my working theory is because it just doesn't afford you as a like creative person who wants to like make it in the space and wants to contribute just doesn't afford you enough you know freedom to do things enough opportunity really right like what can you do like you, you can't build on bitcoin yes. you can't even criticize bitcoin like you just get like, you dunked on relent i saw jack recently um stirred some commotion in the ethereum i think maybe how you were uh, tweeting about this as well where um you know jack is obviously kind of very much on the bitcoin side and um somebody tweeted basically saying that ethereum is being treated by Bitcoiners as a scam. And the reason is because they're going around paying, the foundation's paying developers to go around and talk about ultrasound money. So it's kind of mm. being treated very negatively and very aggressively. And yeah. I think this is kind of where the game theory plays in. It's sort of like, you know, if you just stay in your lane, we can all support each other. We can kind of build things together and like all of, all of kind of like the Bitcoin can get wrapped, go into ETH, get yield farm there. It could be like the bank for the Bitcoin asset, yeah, yeah. everybody can kind of work together. That's a positive sum game. While this like view yeah. of like attacking, you know, this is my only lane and you're getting into my lane right now. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually like the stronger one in this lane. So like, I will, you know, be like the ape and kind of smash you out. It kind of plays naturally, I think, from the, from the game theory dynamic. That's a very good point. And I think there's also a, a big dividing point within the, the Ethereum community too, which is that, you know, you got some types who say like, you know, talking about flipping is, is toxic. We shouldn't even be like talking about that. And then, you, you know, like the bankless guys say like, you know, we, we're, we're advocating like BED, right? A third Bitcoin, a third Ether, a third DeFi and, mm. and sort of that. And I think that's really healthy. But, but I do agree with Jordy that like a lot of the reason why... Um, Bitcoiners are are attacking Ethereum is one because they see it as the biggest threat, right? And and so it's 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 also rational for them to to be the most defensive about it. It, it is a show of strength for Ethereum that they that they attack it because they don't attack other coins, um, you know, until they get really big. Like I think when Doge was at seventy cents, actually Bitcoiners I saw them attacking Doge. Like that that's when like guys like mm -hmm. this is now starting to scare me, right? So um, <laughs> Ethereum definitely scares a lot of Bitcoiners, and I think that. It's actually one of the, you mentioned this to me three months ago. Actually, a lot of things you mentioned to me three months ago, I now like uh, adopt your view three, three months later. But I think Ethereum is actually very bullish for Bitcoin long term because it does drive, it does, it does have this force under Bitcoin saying, you know, I, 
I am at a very high potential market cap. If you don't get your shit together, eventually, you know, there will be problems for you. And and so without that, you know, the community might be even worse than it is now. But I do see some signs that, you know, Bitcoin community, um, you know, not 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 scaling in the way that Ethereum will scale, or not scaling in the ways that other things will scale. But there there is a lot of drive, right? Like you're seeing that with the Bitcoin Beach. You're seeing that with like the rise in. You're seeing that like you know tap. Taproot in November, like will 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 be quite momentous for soft work in four years. Um, I think that there's, it it's it, it's all still shit compared to what's happening on Ethereum. But I actually think that stuff wouldn't even happen if there was no Ethereum, because there there's some chance it would just really be uh-huh. people sitting around all day, talking about holding and talk talking about like eating meat, right? So, like. Like, you know, like, like even with DeFi, right? Like when DeFi first came out, I remember like you and I, we were in Telegram groups in 2018 talking about DeFi because that was when the first time like the Dharma, they coined the term and everyone was laughing at the eptards that they were saying like, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to make this like on-chain finance. It's illegal. Stable coins are illegal. I remember Nick Carter wrote this thing about how stable coins are going to be illegal. All this kind of stuff, right? And, and, and I think like, like now, like we're talking about how do we do Bitcoin? How do we do DeFi on Bitcoin, right? How do mm-hmm. we do these things? So I think Ethereum is one of the most important experimental grounds because it it has this culture of, of experimentation and it has this thing. And I think that the moderate Bitcoiners, they've always respected this part of Ethereum and they've always understood it as being actually very important for Ethereum long, uh, for, for, for even Bitcoin long term, because mm-hmm. it shows like what, what needs to be done long term potentially, right? Like to add utility, yeah. maybe uh, to, to do these kind of things. Um, and I do think there's, there's an interesting game theory where a lot of Bitcoiners will support Alt Layer One and not Ether because they think when they support yeah. Alt Layer One, it's not a threat to Bitcoin SOV. Whereas ETH is already so strong that if you also support ETH as store value, then you break the entire shelling point, like we mentioned. And we that's, that's a fantastic point, actually. Like if you are a Bitcoin believer, supporting like not being a maximalist in the pure sense and just saying you know Bitcoin everything else is a shitcoin. If you actually like skip past number two. And you go to number three, four, five down the list, you know, I don't know about Cardano. I don't want to comment too much about that one. But, you know, if you kind of look at the other layer ones, it makes a lot of sense to support those mm. and clarify kind of like the distinction between, you know, this is a smart contract platform. This is a store of value. And I think potentially like, you know, a lot of the Solana and the other pumps that we're seeing can get driven by a lot of the Bitcoin money. Yeah, and we like we keep we keep going back to like things we've written two years ago, which is kind of funny. Uh, in like an article about religion in crypto, and it's like, why do some religions um, outside of crypto? Why do they tolerate other big religions? But why do they kill you if you're an atheist, right? So there's like there are these 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 uh, basically these groups that are tolerated or these viewpoints that are tolerated, even if they are not in group. And then there are the ones that are like com- completely not tolerated. And like being pro Ethereum in the Bitcoin community is like being an atheist if you're like, I don't know. And so I mean, an even, even better example is kind of, you know, Cold War, right? Like you have US and USSR and there's all these proxy sort of nations that, okay, like, you know, US is going to support Turkey just because mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's close to Russia and we, you know, we want to have sort of a counterbalance to, to Russia. I, I do. Honestly, think though too as to that. Like, I think Bitcoin toxicity is very overstated. I think the community that you were a part of was actually the most toxic part of possibly all Bitcoin. Like, uh-huh. and I and I warned you about this in 2018 too, where, where I said these guys will cancel you o- over like, you know, you t- t- tweeting a single good thing about ETH, and like just these people, you will learn nothing from them, and you will just get hazed all day. And and like, 
you know, that that that's basically what's happening. But I, I mean, I look. I know a lot of moderate Bitcoiners. I mean, I consider myself one. Um, mm. I like these guys are farming. I mean, Mike McDonald's a great example of a moderate Bitcoin. He's kind of like the he's kind of like the paragon of moderate Bitcoiner, right? He like holds sixty five percent Bitcoinish, like maybe five percent ETH to zero percent, depending on how he feels. And then he owns Punks. He actually uses Ethereum, and he farms a lot with WBDC. So he has no problem with Ethereum. Loves using it. Gets NFTs. Punks OG has made more money on Punks than most Ethereans have made on ETH. Uh, like is made more on DeFi than most Ethereans have made on De- like ETH as well. Like he ha- happy to use the chain, happy mm-hmm. to buy ETH when he's bullish on it. But he long term believes in Bitcoin as a store of value. But he also believes in or or he likes to to experiment on Ethereum and other chains. So I think like there's two hundred thousand WBDC now. So clearly Bitcoiners are happy to move their Bitcoin over and use it. And, and I think that that's all very healthy for the space. I really don't think the average Bitcoiner is as nearly as toxic. It's almost like it's almost like this like uh, straw man, I think. I mean, I point out this to some Ethereans where they're, they're saying, wow, the Bitcoin Maxi is so toxic. I, mean, I think um, Gary Tan recently like, did a podcast where he was like, saying, who are these toxic Bitcoin maximalists? And I'm just like, these people really don't exist. It's like 20 dudes on Twitter, probably, maybe 30 dudes. And everyone else is like, like pretty moderate. Like even Jack, like I think he's relatively moderate. He He has to be... He has to be Bitcoin only because of his focus and of his business. But I mean, he—I mean, he minted an NFT uh, on Ethereum for the tweet. He used Vcent. He—he—he really—he really dislikes the ETH as a store of value thesis. So he's pushing back extremely reactively against that. But I think if that thesis was gone, he would actually support a lot of other chains. So I think he—he—he's in that kind of fight or flight kind of thought process there. I mean, if you get if you get Bitcoin dominance over seventy percent, I, I don't think he'll be doing stuff like that anymore. So I think it's like, you know, it's the same thing with Ethereum, right? Like Ethereum at point oh two, um, there was much less toxicity toward Ethereum from Bitcoin people too. There was more dunking, but there was mm-hmm. like less toxicity, like, you know, and 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 so I think like, like the, the, the there there's just it's very actually it's very hard to to categorize the average Bitcoiner. I think uh, and. I would say, especially once you get off of Twitter, then it's like actually p- people, a lot of people just own like like eighty twenty or like seventy yeah. thirty, like anyways, <laughs> and so there's not even like a question of it. They're just market cap weighted, and and so I think it's just it's all it's all in p- people's heads. I think uh, for, for the most part, uh, you make a good point actually. Like when you get off crypto Twitter, there is still a big crypto community, and you have this concept in U.S. politics, which is like the silent minority, which is you know. All these people who are voters, they have majority, opinions. Right? You mean? Sorry, the silent majority. Yeah, my, my, my bad. Basically, you know, there's a lot of crypto people that are not on crypto Twitter. We don't like see them dunking or, or you know, memeing or whatever. But if you go on YouTube, for example, you know, there is like Coin Bureau. Some of these other videos have millions of subscribers. There's obviously a ton of people who love Cardano, who, you know, on crypto Twitter, you don't even yeah. see anybody shilling Cardano. So there is this like huge silent, other part that's outside of crypto Twitter that as a as a crypto community it probably makes sense to at least be aware and, and sort of tap yeah. into what what they're thinking and what they're seeing because it's not the same as what we're seeing exactly that's kind of my point of my tweet where I said like people think like people wonder why crypto Twitter is debating Bitcoin versus ETH all day while like they're debating like Cardano versus like Doge or other coins because <laughs> that's actually so true like I don't see normies like ever debate Bitcoin versus Ether actually they just buy some Bitcoin and some Ether and then they decide what to do with the rest and they ask me why I didn't tell them to buy more Cardano 
The only point I would say is like the GME thing again, like getting back into that, which is basically like there is like a huge force even of unsophisticated people. If they get behind something, that gets the enough resources to then create fundamentals. Like Cardano was like a running joke, right? And then Charles started getting on YouTube. He, he does all these AMAs, whatever. People get kind of religious about it. At this point, they have enough capital that they can just fund a ton of developers to try to build stuff. I mean, we're still waiting to see what's going to come out, but they have a lot of capital. Potentially, like for the first time recently, we were hearing people, you know, getting getting uh, offered projects on Cardano. Smart contract projects might start appearing and it might be legit because they have a lot of fundamental of this like silent majority money. Um, guys, thank you so much for the discussion. It was a pleasure. Thank you guys. No, it was a lot of fun. Thanks, Asmu. Yeah.